We meet today to introduce an important epistle by the Apostle Paul to the Colossians. Today we are going to be making reference to a number of verses in this particular passage, but not a particular chapter, the reason being it is an introduction to this book. The epistle to the Colossians is one of the prison epistles which are so called because Paul wrote them while he was in prison in Rome. The prison epistles include Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and the very personal epistle to Philemon. The year was about B.C. 62 when this epistle was written. Four messengers left Rome unobserved, but they each carried a very valuable document. Titicus was carrying the epistle to the Ephesians over to Ephesus, where he was the pastor or the leader of that church. Epaphroditus was carrying the epistle to the Philippians as he was the pastor in Philippi. Epaphras was carrying the epistle to the Colossians. Apparently, he was the leader of the church in Colossae. Onesimus was carrying the epistle to Philemon. Philemon was his master, and Onesimus, who had run away, was returning to him. So these four are companion epistles, if you like, and together they have been called the anatomy of the church or anatomy of Christianity. We can see that the subjects of these epistles cover all the aspects of Christian faith. For example, Ephesians is about the body of believers called the church of which Christ is the head. Colossians directs our attention to the head of the body, who is Christ. The body itself is secondary. Christ is the theme. He is the center of the circle around which all Christian living revolves. Colossians emphasizes the pleroma. Christ is the fullness of God. Philippians, on the other hand, shows the church walking here on the earth. Christian living is the theme, and it is the periphery of the circle of which Christ is the center. Philippians emphasizes the kenosis, that is, Christ becoming a servant, or the self-emptying of Christ. Philemon gives us Christianity in action. We would say it is where the rubber meets the road, or in that day, it was where the sandals touched the Roman road. It demonstrates how Christianity worked out in a pagan society. Now we can see why these four documents have been called the anatomy of the church. They belong together to make a whole. You see, all that you can talk about Christian living, Christian walking, and even describing the body of Christ would be meaningless if you do not touch on Christ, the King of the Kingdom. If you do not touch on Christ, the head of the church, the reason why we ought to walk the Christian walk, in a way, he is the coach, the secret of the success of the team. Now, I don't think any armored car can ever carry four valuable documents. Do you realize that even if today you possessed those four original documents as they came from the hand of Paul, you would probably get any price you wanted for them. You would have the wealth of a king. Well, we measure it in terms of 
other than the dollar, the rand, the naira, the kwacha, uh, whatever sign, their spiritual value cannot be estimated in human terms at all. Now, Colossian ruins stand in the gates of Phrygia. It is over the same area where Laodicea and Herapolis are. These are some ruins of the city. There are no ruins of any church. The church at Colos met in the home of Philemon. Now, I doubt that there ever was a church building in that place. Now, a great civilization and a great population were in that area. It was more or less a door to the Orient, to the East. It was called the Gates of Praja. Here, the East and the West met. Here is where the Roman Empire attempted to tame the East and to bring it under Roman subjugation. Colosse was a great fortress city, as were Laodicea, Philadelphia, Sardis, Theatra, and Pergamum. All these had been great cities of defense against the invasion from the East. But by the time of Paul, the apostle, the danger had been relieved because the Roman Empire was pretty much in charge of the world by that time. As a result, the people had lapsed into paganism and gross immorality at the time of Paul, and Colossae was typical of the great cities of that day. As far as the record is concerned, Paul never visited the city of Colossae. It seems that he did not come in through the gates of Persia, but instead he came into the north of Colossae, over at Sardis, and apparently he took that Roman road to Ephesus and bypassed Colossae. So what happened? Even though Paul was never in the city of Colossae, he was the founder of the church there. How did he do it? Epaphras was the leader of the church, and he may have been the direct founder, but Paul founded the church there. He was the founder in very much same way as he was the founder of the church at Rome. He touched multitudes of the people in the Roman Empire who later gravitated to Rome and formed the church there. Paul may have visited Laodicea, although I doubt that very seriously, but believers may have come from there to Colossae. But converts from Paul's ministry in Ephesus very definitely could have come to Colossae to form the nucleus of the church that began to grow up in Colossae. And Colossae is located just 75 to 100 miles east of Ephesus. Therefore, when he spent those three years in Ephesus, he touched many people. He taught them. In fact, he touched two of them teaching in two of his years. When Paul spent three years of his ministry in Ephesus, two of those years he was teaching in the school of Tyrannus. There was a tremendous civilization in that area. The culture of the Roman Empire was centered there. It was no longer centered in Greece, which had pretty much deteriorated along with the philosophy and culture. But the Greek culture was a very in Asia Minor. 
the area known as Turkey today. It was in this area that Paul did his greatest work along with his co-workers. They were with him, John Mark, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, and apparently some of the other apostles. We know that the apostle John became the pastor at Ephesus later on. So Asia Minor was a great cultural center, but it was a center for heathenism, paganism, and mystery religions. There was already abroad that which is known as Gnosticism, the first heresy of the church. There were many forms of Gnosticism, and in Colosse, there were the essence. There are three points now of the identification of this group, the essence, which basically point to the fact that they were of Gnostic heresy. Observe the three points here. The essence had an exclusive spirit. They were the aristocrats in wisdom. They felt that they were the people. They had knowledge in a jug and held the stopper in their hands. They felt that they had the monopoly of it all. As a result, they considered themselves the super duper in knowledge and thought that they knew more than any of the apostles. Paul will issue them a warning in the first chapter, Colossians chapter 1 verse 28, he says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ. You see, perfection is not to be found in any cult or any heresy, but in Christ. All wisdom is found in him. The essence also held speculative tenets on creation. They taught that God did not create the universe directly, but created a creature who in turn created another creature until one finally created the physical universe. Christ was considered a creature in this long series of creations. This was known in pantheistic Greek philosophy as the demiurge. Now, Paul refutes this in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 all the way to 19 and chapter 2 verse 18. That's why he talks about the deity of Christ. The third position of the essence was this, which was an underlying mark of their group. It was their ethical practice of asceticism and unrestrained licentiousness. They got the asceticism from the influence of Greek Stoicism and the unrestrained licentiousness from the influence of Greek Epicureanism. You remember Paul addressed these two groups in Acts chapter 17. Now, he refutes this teaching in Colossians chapter 2 verse 16, verse 23, and chapter 3 verse 5, all the way to verse 9. So we see Colossians is the chart and the compass which enables the believer to sail between the ever-present danger of ritualism and rationalism. On the other hand, there is always the danger of Christianity freezing into a form, into a ritual. It has done that in many areas and in many churches so that Christianity involves nothing more than going through a routine. On the other hand, 
is the danger that Christianity will evaporate into philosophy. So there are two dangers, my friend. One is to freeze into form and become nothing but a ritualistic church. The other is to evaporate into steam and be lost in liberalism and false philosophy. You will remember that the Lord Jesus said that he was the water of life. He didn't say that I am the ice of life. Neither did he say I am the steam of life. He is the water of life. Water at the temperature of life, neither freezing nor boiling. The water of life is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians chapter 1 verse 27. Christ is to live in you, my friend. He is to walk down the streets where you live. Christianity is Christ down where we live. Christ in the nitty gritty stuff of life. Down where the rubber meets the road. There has always been the danger of adding something to or subtracting something from Christ. The oldest heresy is also the newest heresy, by the way. Christianity is not a mathematical problem of adding or subtracting. Christianity is Christ. This is what Paul teaches in the epistle to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 says, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You see, it's all in him. In him dwells all the pleroma. All you need is to be found in Christ Jesus. Here is a quotation from William Sunday in the Ephesian epistle. He says, in the Ephesian epistle, the church is the primary subject and the thought passes upward to Christ as the head of the church. In the Colossian epistle, Christ is the primary subject. And the thought passes downward to the church as the body. You see, the dominating thought in this epistle is Christ is all. He is all I need. He is everything. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, look on thine own nothingness. Be humble, but look at Jesus, thy representative, and be glad. It will save thee many pangs if thou will learn to think of thyself as being in him. You see, accepted in the beloved, finding him our all in all. That's a wonderful thought. That's a wonderful teaching that we see here. Now, if you are resting in Christ, you will find that you don't need to go through a ritual. You won't need to do a lot of uh, uh, grindation, so to say. You won't even be discussing the theories of inspiration, for example. You either believe that the Bible is the word of God or you don't believe it is the word of God. Now, let us stop this so-called intellectual approach that we find in our churches today. It's not good, my friend. We need to get down off our high horses. Remember that the Lord Jesus is feeding the sheep. He is not feeding giraffes. The message of the gospel is simple. The practical section of the epistle to the Colossians shows us Christ, the fullness of God poured out in the lives of the believers. The alabaster box of ointment needs to be broken today. 
The world not only needs to see something, but it needs to smell something. The pollution of this world is giving a very bad odor in these days. We need something for the fragrance of the loveliness of Christ. And only the church is permitted to break that alabaster box of ointment and let it out. Let the fragrance out. Now, my friend, here is Dr. McGee's suggested outline of this book or this epistle to the Colossians. Dr. McGee suggests that this epistle is divided into two major sections. There is the doctrinal section and the practical section. Under the doctrinal section, we see the fullness of God in Christ are made full. That is chapter 1 to chapter 4. The details of this section is that there is an introduction in chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 8. Then Paul's prayer in chapter 1, verse 9 to verse 14. Uh, the person of Christ, verse 15 to verse 19 of chapter 1. And then the objective work of Christ for sinners is chapter 1, verse 20 to verse 23. The subjective work of Christ for saints in chapter 1, verse 24 to verse 29. Christ, the answer to philosophy, for he is the head of the church, is in chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 15. Then Christ, the answer to ritual, for he is the heart, is in chapter 2, verse 16 to verse 23. Under the practical section, we see Christ, the fullness of God, poured out in life through believers. That is the theme of chapters 3 to chapter 4. The details thereof are as follows. Chapter 3, verse 1 to verse 4, thoughts and affections of believers are heavenly. Chapter 3, verse 5 to chapter 4, verse 6, living, the living of believers is holy. Chapter 4, verse 7 to verse 18, fellowship of believers is hearty. Now, in its introduction to Colossians, the Word in Life Study Bible has this to say, and I would like to quote it because this helps us even to be ready to go into this book, anticipating God to speak to us. The Word in Life Study Bible has put it in a language that actually fits our modern day issues. Listen to this. Can Christianity compare in an age of Star Wars, New Age thinking and occult metaphysics? Absolutely. In fact, not only can the faith hold its own, it can be expected to prevail over competing worldviews and systems of thought. It happened before at Colossae. Christians at Colossae, like many Christians today, were fond of mixing and matching the truth of Christ with ideas and practices from the surrounding non-Christian culture. The results were sometimes wild and always destructive. Some fell into extreme forms of legalism. Others took liberties with their freedom in Christ and succumbed to gross immorality. The doctrines of the faith were mingled with incompatible mysteries and the integrity of the gospel was compromised. As a result, Colossian Christianity 
was hard to distinguish from other religions of the day. Sound similar? If so, pay attention to Colossians. It speaks directly to the same kind of situation that exists today. Rather than conceding the idea of Christ as one God among many, Colossians establishes him as God alone, capital G, the preeminent Lord of the universe, creator of all things, the only deserving of honor, worship, and obedience. If Philippians presents Christ in his humility, Colossians presents Christ in his exaltation. In a day of moral and philosophical relativism, when many people hold to the idea that what's true for you may not be true for me, and all religions are basically the same, Colossians sounds a clarion call to a crucial absolute Jesus is Lord. That made all the difference in the first century. It still does today. And I hope it will do to you, my friend. You can have copies of the notes and outlines used for these Living Word for Africa programs so you can follow them as you listen. For your copies, please write to the Living Word for Africa, P.O. Box 4232, Kempton Park 1620, South Africa. Please say which book of the Bible you want them for and be sure to include your name and contact information. Let me give you that address again. It's the Living Word for Africa, P.O. Box 4232, Kempton Park, 1620, South Africa.